0: Eventually, there we go. All right, everyone say, God bless America. America. Say it again, God bless America. America. Hallelujah. You know, our nation was founded on a great awakening of the heart of men to God. It was founded for religious liberty. How many of you know, since the beginning, we've been a God-preaching, word-believing, God-sending nation. And the enemy does not like that. He doesn't want us to finish our course as a nation to continue to spread the gospel. And so he attacked. He attacked 15 years ago at 9-11. But guess what? All that did was awaken a sleeping giant in the church to pray for the restoration of God in this nation. This is a Christian nation. No matter how many people are on the news trying to say that we're not, guess what? We are. And you know what I love love loved about watching the olympics this year was how many of the olympians said praise god glory to god i believe in god it's because of him hallelujah so just in this undertone of a way at the olympics they destroyed everything that people in this nation who are saying we're atheistic now and that we're not a god-pleasing nation we're a muslim nation we're this nation those olympians said "Uh uh-uh Just regular old people, just like us, are still Christians. Our nation still believes in God, and that's what we're going to have. Hallelujah. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we continue to declare and decree about this nation that we are one nation under God, indivisible. Hallelujah. And so, Father, have your way in our nation, and let your glory be revealed to every mind, to every heart, In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to take a seat. The doctor finally put an official diagnosis to what's wrong in my foot. It's called perineal tendinitis, and it has to go right back to the pit of hell from whence it came. But until it does, I'm going to obey the doctor's orders and not do what aggravates it. (laughs) So I'm sitting. Is that okay with everyone? It's going to be hard for me not to pace. I'm a mover. So I'll do my very best not to overuse my hands because I got to do something. So (laughs) how many of you were here? How many of you were not here last week? Raise your hands. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Can I have that water, honey? Um, How many of you know church attendance is not a spiritual gift? (laughs) Not going to stand before God and he's not going to say, well done, you were in church every Sunday without fail. You got perfect attendance. Here's a jewel in your crown. No, church attendance is not a spiritual gift. It's not something we do for him. It's something we do for us. Amen. Yeah. Bible says don't forsake the assembling of yourself together. Hallelujah. I believe firmly in church. believe firmly in coming together and letting our rivers converge and that corporate anointing of God that refreshes like no other. Hallelujah. God is good, but it's not a spiritual gift. So it's something we do for us. Amen. 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 So we started a series last week called Add to Your Faith. And I'm just going to do a quick review about the why we need to add to our faith. We're going to read 2 Peter 1. I'm going to read a few verses in here. <clears throat> it says, this letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to you who share the same precious faith that we have. So this is to us. We share the same faith. This faith was given to you because of justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Verse 3. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of His marvelous glory and excellence. And because of His glory and excellence, He has given us great and precious promises. And these are the promises that enable you to participate in His divine nature. Everyone say, participate. And escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Say, I will respond to God's promises. Add to your faith the generous provision of moral excellence. And moral excellence, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, patient endurance. And to patient endurance, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly affection. And to brotherly affection, love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard. Everyone say, work hard. Work hard. To prove that you are really among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I will always remind you. Say remind you. So that word reminds just goes to show that this isn't the first time that they heard this. Paul had preached to them before about adding to their faith, and I'm gonna say he probably did it quite a few times. I remind my kids of things all the time. Clean your room, sweep the floor, do your chores. Is your homework done? Did you brush your teeth? You would think you wouldn't have to tell teenagers to brush your teeth, but sometimes you just gotta remind them. Did you brush your teeth today? You know, did you read your word today? I remind my kids every day to the point where they're like, mom, we get it. I'm like, it is my job to remind you of these things until you're out of my house. They'll probably move out like the minute they graduate. So they and I stop reminding them. But Paul or Peter had told them these things before. Therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you already know them. And are standing firm in the truth you have been taught. And it is only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live. For our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life. So I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I am gone. Everyone say, add to your faith. faith. Spiritual maturity is formed in us when we add to our faith. And that word faith means. Reliance on Christ for salvation. And we covered it last week. It's always and only by faith in Jesus that we are saved. We're not adding to salvation. We're not adding to the way of salvation. We're not adding to the gospel. But once we are saved, we're going to add on the foundation of that safe salvation. All of these things that will grow maturity on the inside of us. Spiritual maturity was not an option as far as Peter was concerned. It was not something to be taken lightly. It was daily something that they were supposed to be guarding and doing and checking up on and even giving themselves a grade on. This is what spiritual maturity looks like. This is what spiritual maturity looks like. It's not how often you prophesy, it's not how powerful the anointing, it's not how often you read your Bible or go to church or, or any of these things, how many hours a day you pray, do not equal to spiritual maturity. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, patient endurance, brotherly affection, godliness, love for everyone. These are the evidence of faith. These are the evidence of salvation in your life. in my life. These are the evidence of spiritual maturity. That's what we're looking for on the inside of us. Everyone say the word is a mirror, mirror. not a window. Uh Uh Aha. Sometimes we like to make it a mirror or a window and hold it up and look through the window through the word to you and tell you exactly what's wrong with you. The word is not a window. The word is a mirror. We're supposed to hold it up and look at me. Everyone say, look at me. So the word is a mirror that we're supposed to take uh, guard over and look after and grade ourselves on how much of it is, is at work in our lives. He must first be in our hearts by faith before he can manifest through us into life. It's not what we do by ourselves. This is not something we can do by ourselves. It's not just works. Works without reliance upon salvation for Christ is filthy rags. It's not going to stand in the presence of God. But faith without works is dead. We can't do this ourselves. Why? Because our goal is to please him. We need to safeguard our faith, and Peter even said it right here, so you don't fall away. So we're safeguarding our hearts, growing up into Christ, firmly rooted and planted and grounded in who he is on the inside of us. So that's why we need to add to our faith. And whether or not we care about adding to our faith is kind of a barometer of our heart. Remember last week we said, actions reveal the heart. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, Jesus said. Our actions reveal the heart. And if we have kind of a who cares attitude about adding to our faith, we should be a little concerned about that. We should be very much concerned about that. Because it's an evidence of a, a cooling off in our hearts towards Christ. Christianity is not a retirement plan. It's not just a retirement plan. It's not just, oh, I said the sinner's prayer. I'm good to go for eternity. What I do here doesn't matter. It's not a retirement plan. It's not fire insurance, right? Christianity is not fire insurance. It's not, I escaped hell, and that's all that matters, If that's all it is to you, I'm going to be praying for you. (laughs) And Paul did. He prayed for the church until Christ was formed in them. And this is part of Christ being formed in us, adding to our faith. There is something that's supposed to follow salvation, and that is change. If our life after receiving Christ, after relying upon him for salvation, looks the same as it did before we received Christ, we need to ask ourselves, why because his grace, like Pastor Michael said in worship, it's the divine influence on the heart that reflects out into life. There is supposed to be change. There's supposed to be an adding to our faith that makes us look different after Christ than it did before. And I can't get into all the verses we did last week about how Paul talked about that and Peter talked about that. You can go back and listen to the tape. Because we have a lot of, of ground to cover today. <clears throat> last week we talked about moral excellence and knowledge. The next one in the list is self-control, and I'm going to hold off on that one till next week. I am really, really excited about next week. You don't want to miss next week. It's going to be powerful. He's put some things in my heart on on what to do next week, and it's going to be life-changing. You don't want to miss it, but we're going to skip over self-control for now and head right over to patience. Everyone say patience. (laughs) Hallelujah. It keeps me from getting straight A's on my report card every single time. Dine baby. <clears throat> Michael's mom used to sing them a song when he was little, and he sang it to me real quick after we started dating. It goes, have patience, have patience, don't be in such a hurry when you get impatient. How many of you know it? You only start to worry. Only I change worry to murmur because that's what I do. Remember, remember that God hates murmuring. And think of all the times when people have to wait for you. Isn't that fun? And then like every time he sang it, it was just like, gosh, fingers on a chalkboard. And then he finally would just say, don't make me sing the patient song." But now we sing it to our kids, and it's awesome. But patience is probably not my strong suit. I would like to say I get a B, but sometimes it's even just a C. So patient endurance, I'm working on it every single day, adding to my faith. But patience, the definition here, is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. You know, if you had just stopped at the... (laughs) thanks the capacity to accept or tolerate delay trouble or suffering. You know, I would even get a better grade. But without getting angry or upset, a cheerful endurance. How many of you are cheerful when you're being patient, when you're exercising your patient? Raise your hands. Oh, you all get B's on your report cards too? Awesome. (laughs) It's a cheerful endurance, but hope is always the basis of patience because you have a hope in the outcome, being what the Word of God says it's going to be, that's supposed to enable us to patiently endure. Endure means the ability or strength to continue or last, especially despite fatigue or stress or other adverse conditions. This is a fun one, isn't it? (laughs) So it's, But hope is always at the base, basis of it. And actually, what this patient endurance is specifically referring to, although we can apply it to every area of the life, we can apply it to waiting on God's promises to come to pass in our life, we can apply it to driving, hallelujah, we can apply it to waiting for our children, amen and amen. But what this patience is really talking to, about is the patience that we, is waiting for Christ's return. Patient endurance, the ability to tolerate, delay, trouble or suffering without getting angry or upset. This is supposed to set us apart as being a follower of a Christ. This is what the world is supposed to be able to look at us and say they're spiritual. <laughs> they are a follower of Christ because they have patient endurance. And we have to remember that when Peter was writing this book, they were under intense persecution. Nero was in charge, and he was lighting Christians on fire in his garden to use his torches. He was having them torn apart in the Colosseum just because they believed in Christ. They were facing extreme, extreme persecution. And if you read through the New Testament, even Peter and Paul were saying, it's not going to be long. Jesus' soon return is coming. And that was 2,000 years ago. They were anxiously anticipating the return of Christ. And I want to ask us a question today. Have we lost our patience or even our hope for the return of Christ? Are we eagerly and anxiously anticipating and living life as though Jesus is really going to come back? Or do we just want him to fix it down here? so that it's better for us here. You know, the slaves in Egypt didn't necessarily want to be delivered. They really wanted it just to be better in Egypt. They just would have preferred to have not been slaves in Egypt. They weren't looking to get out. In fact, they often turned around and wanted to go back. (laughs) We have no garlic, and we have no leeks out here. Life is not worth living In the desert. Life is not, we had it better in Egypt, they used to say over and over and over. We had it better in slavery. We had it better when they were beating us every day and making us do their labor because we had garlic and we had leeks. Ouch. Are we anxiously anticipating the return of Christ? Are we saying, Father, just fix it? Fix it down here so our life is better. You know, if we're not eagerly anticipating and looking forward to the return of Christ and cheerfully enduring the persecution that comes along with the life that we're living now, we're not going to even do what the word has to say about the return of Christ. We're not going to be concerned for the souls of men. We're not going to be concerned that they, like Pastor Dan was saying, every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, that really is a prophecy about that day. But are we concerned at all that they're going to bow on this side of the judgment seat? Or are we even thinking about the judgment seat? Are we even thinking Jesus is coming? We do, but we just think I'm going up and going to escape. We need to be patiently enduring and thinking about the return of Christ in light of what's going to happen to them. That's why we rocked the block yesterday. That is why we did what we did yesterday at Burbank, and it made an impact in their lives. Someone came up, I think, to Christine who said, what kind of church does this? Was that you? And they were from a Catholic church. You know why? Why? Because all the other churches that do anything like what we did yesterday do it as a fundraiser. You have to pay for this. You have to pay for that. You have to pay for your food. You have to pay if you want to come. You can walk in, but everything that you do here, you have to pay for. I want something from you. That's why we're doing this. Nobody, nobody goes out and just says, we're going to feed you. We're going to entertain you. We're going to provide games for you. We're going to bless you. Nobody does that. And it speaks volumes about the love of God. And it spoke to them yesterday, Jesus loves you, and so do we. We didn't do it to get them in our doors. But if they get into trouble at some point and are desperate for answers, who are they going to go to? The ones who loved them. We have what they need. We're concerned for their souls, and we want to show them the love of Christ. And that's what it means to patiently endure. It's not just about us. It's about us being solid so that we can give them what they need. And so that we can stand firm until the end. Because persecution stinks, doesn't it? <clears throat> Luke twenty-one nineteen says, In your patience, this is Jesus talking, you will possess your souls. And he was talking, if you go back and read Luke 21, which we're not going to do for time's sake, but he was talking about the persecution that's going to come right before his return. And he said, in your patience, you're going to possess your souls In your patient endurance and your cheerful waiting for me. It will strengthen you to stand in that time of intense persecution and be the lighthouse that I have called you to be. James 1.4 says, let patience finish its work. Oh, hallelujah. So that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And my favorite word in that whole verse is let. How many of you know what that word means? It means you have to give it permission. (laughs) You have to give patience permission to complete a work in you. It smooths off the rough edges. It really, really does. And if we let patience smooth those rough edges off, then when we come into contact with persecution, when we come into contact with those that don't know him, that are just rubbing us the wrong way at work, and they bump up against us, they're not going to feel rough edges. They're going to feel the smooth love of Christ coming right out of us. Hebrews 10.36, it says, You have need of steadfast patience and endurance so that you may perform and fully accomplish the will of God and thus receive and carry away and enjoy to the full what is promised. And we really like to use this, and we can because there's other scriptures that support this, like to use this when we're waiting for the promise of God to come to pass. I read this every day. I'm believing God to heal my foot. I really am. It's been six weeks, and that's way too long to not be able to move without pain. And some of you have been waiting longer than that for the promises of God to come to pass in your life. And it says we need to be patient and fully and endure so that he can fully do the will of God. And it does have to do with us receiving his promises, but the specific promise that this is talking about is Jesus' return. We need patience. Everyone say, I need patience. I, need patience. I, will, I will let patience let it finish, finish its work in me. Work in so I can fully mature amen. Patience is a good thing. It's a good thing. Hallelujah. And um, we're going to move on to godliness, and I'm going to go kind of quick. We're going to get through four of these today so that we can, can finish up with self-control next week. But the next one is godliness, and godliness is a good thing, but I don't think in this case it's what we think it is. We talked last week about moral excellence, and that was more about character and godly character. This word godliness me- literally means good worship it's not necessarily just about character this word means good worship reverence piety to adore that's what godliness means so we're supposed to add to our reliance upon Christ good worship so we're going to talk about talk about this for a minute i actually looked in the the greek lexicon about this word and what it says is godliness is the opposite of religion. Godliness relates to real, true, vital, and spiritual relationship with God. Religion relates to the outward acts of religious observances or ceremonies. We call those works, which can be done through the flesh. And our English word religion was never used in the sense of true godliness. It always meant the outward forms of worship only. But godliness means relationship. So religion is works alone. Remember, works without reliance upon Christ for salvation are filthy rags. They are meaningless. They count for nothing. Godliness is relationship with God that results in good works. So you can't see the difference on the outside. That's why we're not supposed to judge another man's servant. The difference is inside on the heart. John fifteen four says, Remain in me, or abide in me, my favorite, and I will abide in you. Just as no branch can bear fruit by itself without abiding in the vine, neither can you bear fruit, producing evidence of your faith unless you abide in me. We are supposed to produce fruit fruit. We're supposed to produce evidence of our faith. And the way we do that is not just by making it happen. I'm going to be better today. Get up and say, I'm just going to do better today. I'm going to do this good work today. I'm, going to, I'm just going to grit my teeth and make it happen. No. The way to make that happen is when you abide. When we abide in him, our fruit changes. When we abide in him, our fruit changes. And if you don't like the fruit, you need to check the root. Right? If the fruit that's coming out is not moral excellence and knowledge and patience and godliness and worship, if the fruit that's coming out are not these things, then we need to backpedal and go back and see where our roots are. Um. Paul prayed for the Ephesians. May Christ, through your faith, actually dwell, settle down, abide, and make his permanent home in your hearts. May you be rooted deep in love. And who is love? God. So may you be rooted deep in God and founded securely in God. Abiding. That's where true worship comes from, that's where that relationship with God that results in good works comes from. The more you abide, the more your fruit is going to look like him. Amen? Amen. And it goes on to say, biblical authors use this particular word for godliness to summarize the behavior expected of Christians who have come to know the God of scripture. God has already given us everything we need for life and godliness to produce evidence of our faith. So remember last week, we just have to participate with it. And we participate with it first and foremost by abiding in the vine. Holiness is both a gift and an accomplishment. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week, but I'm throwing it out there today. Holiness is both a gift and an accomplishment he gives it, and we live it. And it seems that the church, and, can, and this, is, this, is, this quote is straight from my um, commentary on First and Second Peter, but I, I agree with it. In a continuing reaction against fundamentalism, we put too much stress on our freedom in Christ and too little on our responsibilities in Christ. We are free, and it's good to be free but we also have a responsibility to him, to godliness, to worship. And this is true worship. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg of you, in view of all the mercies of God, to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy and devoted and consecrated and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable, rational, intelligent service and in spiritual worship. So worship is not just what we did up here today, right? It's part of it. Praising him, adoring him, that's part of it. But the word goes a little deeper into it and tells us that true spiritual worship is what we do through our lives. Are we representing all that he is? And we get that through that relationship with God that manifests itself out in changed behavior, in good works. Amen? Amen? Amen. Say, I will. will. Live in godliness. Godliness. Amen. Okay, the next thing we're supposed to add to our faith is brotherly affection. Everyone smile at your neighbor now. (laughs) Smile at your other neighbor. There you go. You did it. That is brotherly affection, baby. <laughs> it literally means benevolence and sweetness of disposition. Uh-oh. <laughs> do you know any Christians who are not sweetly disposed? <laughs> are we ever? Look at, and again, it's, it's not a window. It's a mirror. Look at yourself and say, Am I? do I have a sweet disposition? we're supposed to. That's what brotherly affection means. That's what it means to add to your faith. It means to have a sweet disposition. Right? And again, in Ephesians when Paul is praying for the church, he prays that the Holy Spirit indwells there. He said, I pray that the Holy Spirit will indwell your innermost being and your personality. So we can say all we want, that's just who I am. But that doesn't line up with what the word says. That may be just who you were. But remember, Christianity is not just fire insurance, it's supposed to result in evidence of our faith, it's supposed to result in change. We're not supposed to look the same after as we do before not supposed to act the same after we receive him as we did before. We're not supposed to think the same after as we do before. We're not supposed to speak the same after as we do before. He is supposed to affect every area of our life, time, talent, treasure, tongue, all of it. Supposed to affect us, spirit, soul, and body. So brotherly affection. Romans 12, 9 and 10 says, Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hey, is, have you ever known anyone who's just not quite real with their brotherly affection? Let's just not pretend. Let's really mean it. And you know what? If you have a hard time with that, you know what you do? You say, Father, flood me with love today. Flood me with your love for them today. And if you have an EGR, anyone know what an EGR is? Extra grace required. If you have anyone in your life that's an EGR then you need to be praying extra for grace (laughs) and love. And you know what? When you do, he will flood you with compassion for them. So don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Take delight in it. It should make you absolutely giddy to honor one another. We're supposed to take delight in it, right? So what did this look like? What did this brotherly affection look like in the early church? Call it the many faces of love. Are you ready? They sold their houses and land and brought the money to help all the believers out of work due to persecution from being a Christian. Not everybody did this. We're not asking you to go do this. This was a spirit-led deal. But they allowed the Spirit to lead them to generosity for one another. People in the book of Acts, people in that early church age, were losing their income because they were Christians. Whether it was because they made idols before and turned completely away from that, or because they professed to be a Christian and their, and their boss fired them for that, for whatever reason, multitudes were out of work in the early church. And so God moved on the hearts of the ones who had it. God's never going to ask you for what you don't have. And to be honest, the ones who sold their properties and houses were the ones who had two or more. They didn't sell their residence. They didn't sell their main residence. They sold the extra that they had. They gave over and above out of their abundance to bless the others. Like the, the Christian baker that took a stand, right, and lost income because of it. That's what they're doing here. They're selling their houses or something. They're blessing the ones who are suffering for standing up for, for the gospel. Amen. They were practicing Proverbs 21 26. The godly live generous lives. Amen. So it also looked like breaking bread and meeting together in homes. Breaking bread just means eat. Who doesn't love to eat? who doesn't love to eat bread? I love that they say breaking bread, because bread is just my favorite, and I cannot keep sourdough bread in the house for very long, because it just screams to me, put me in the toaster and butter me up. (laughs) Isn't that just yummy? Sourdough bread. I am hungry. I didn't eat breakfast this morning, but they broke bread and met together in each other's homes. Why? Because they were desperate for fellowship. They needed it. They were being persecuted. They needed to build one another up. So the Bible says they went to the synagogue. They came to church. They absolutely did. But they also broke apart into groups and encouraged each other that way and developed community that way. When you're in intense persecution, you need one another. When you're going through a dark time, isolation is the worst thing for you. You will fall away we need one another. Oh, it sounds very familiar. It sounds kind of like life groups, right? How many of you were a part of a life group? What Weren't they awesome? Did you meet people you hadn't met before? Did you encourage one another's faith? Did you encourage each other in the Lord? It's a good thing. And there are some people that say, well, I don't need that. I don't need that. I just need Jesus phooey, fui. the Bible says, do not forsake the assemblings of yourself together, big groups, little groups, corporate church, life groups, going out for coffee after Sunday morning service, we need the body, and I'm just going to propose this, if we are of those who say, I don't need that, I just need Jesus, two things, Um, yes, you do, yes, we all do, and it could be that you've been hurt, and that's your security guard, I've been hurt, I'm going to keep everyone behind this wall, and I'm just spiritualizing it behind. I don't need that, I just need Jesus. God made us relational, he made us to need one another. Even more so as we see the day approaching, the Bible says, draw nigh and meet together. So, um, so that's the first thing for those of us who say, I might not need that. The second thing is, it's not all about you. It's not all about me. What if they need the God that's on the inside of you? What if they need, you've been through things. He's brought you through things. You have a testimony. What if they need your testimony? What if somebody that's struggling right now with what you've already gotten victory over could use the wisdom that God's put on the inside of you through what you've walked through? Amen. We all need one another. We all need to break bread and we all need to meet together, not just here where we can go deep into relationship and deep into him and deep into his word together, amen? So another way that this love manifested in the early church is if you see a brother caught in a sin, you who are mature, you who have added to your faith, restore such a one. Not maybe what you would usually think about for brotherly affection, is it? <laughs> but guess what? Love does what's best for the other person. And this doesn't mean you're making this a window. This we're not doing to anybody we don't have a relationship with. If you see someone that you're intimate and close with caught in a sin, you're supposed to meekly and gently go to them and approach them. How can I help you? Are you stuck? And can I be your accountability partner? And what can I do to help you? I know your heart for God. I know your love for God. And I know you don't want to be in this position. What can I do for you? Gently, not up in front of the whole church. Not in a big group. One-on-one. Don't, don't try to do that to someone that you don't have a relationship with because they will just turn around and walk away and get burned on church. And get burned on God. That's not what this is talking about. This is a meek. This is a humble. This is a, and it even says, be careful lest you also fall. If you're not full of meekness and tears for them and haven't been praying for them to get free, uh, maybe that's not your thing to do. But this is one of the ways that it looked like in the church. If you see someone that you are tight with and they're stuck in a sin, you need to help give them a lifeline, help them get out. Amen? And the, the, going a little deeper down that way, this was Paul. So this is the apostle, right? Not everybody did this, but this is one of the many faces of love. If, <clears throat> Paul told the Corinthians to kick a guy out of the church who claimed to be a Christian and wouldn't stop blatantly sinning. Now, that was after a process, and that was after a step, after step, after step of meekly and humbly going to him. Hey, listen, let us help you. Let me help you. Let me minister to you. How can I help you? How can I help you? After that whole process, Paul said, kick him out. Don't even have fellowship with him. You know, if we did that in the church today, we would get sued. (laughs) <laughs> but that was love you know why what happened to that guy he repented and he came back to God he came back to God so we're not going to do that I promise you we're not going to stand before in the church and say kick this guy out but but that was one of the many faces that is one of the many faces of love and brotherly affection Another way that this presented itself in the early church was serving. They served one another. Jesus came to serve. They took that example, and they served one another. And finally, they prayed for and encouraged one another. So when God brings someone to your heart, you're going to pray for him. Shoot them a little text. Encourage them. We're not going to let go of those little things that we can do to show brotherly affection, Right? And love for everyone, this is the last one that we're going to end up today, love for everyone. So love for everyone is different than brotherly affection. Brotherly affection is inside the church. Love for everyone is concerning outside the church. Brotherly affection is inside, love for everyone is outside. Jesus showed different, love manifested differently through Jesus to those in the church than it did outside of the church. He was harder on those in the church than he was outside of the church, wasn't he? I think it's reversed now. I think sometimes we expect those outside of the church, we're really hard on them. But grace and mercy flow within the church. (laughs) So we want to bring this kind of to where it's supposed to be, love for everyone. That word love is agape. We're going to love everyone. Everyone say, everyone means everyone. Okay, agape means... Uh, The Greek lexicon says this about agape. This word was unknown outside of the New Testament. Philanthropy was the highest word used by the Greeks, which is a very different thing to agape, and it was a far lower form. Philanthropy, in its full display, only gave to him who was entitled to his full rights. Only if they earned it, only if they were entitled, did they get their full rights to something. That's how the world thought that then. Agape denotes the love which springs from admiration and veneration and which chooses its object with decision of will and devotes a self-denying and compassionate devotion to it. This is love in its fullest conceivable form. I'm going to say that again. It chooses its object with a decision of the will and devotes a self-denying and compassionate devotion to it. This is love in its fullest conceivable form. Let's think about that for just a minute because this is, the, they call it the God kind of love. Agape. This is how God loves us and them, but let's think about us for just a second. He admires me. God admires you. Can you even imagine that? I know all my faults. I know all my failures. To think that God would have this kind of love? He admires me? What? It is mind-blowing. Because I don't even admire me. But God admires me. Say, God admires me. He's good, isn't he? How can he admire me? And it says, he lived us before we ever picked him. So this is before Jesus. It doesn't have anything to do with the blood. He sees us through the blood. Amen. But he loved us before all that. He admired us before all that. Because he looks for the gold. And he knows it's in there. And I love, I love, I love, I love, I love the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery it just, I think, perfectly shows the heart of God and the love of Christ. He never condemned the sinner, ever. Let's just stop there, because the church is really good at condemning the person outside of the church, aren't we? He never condemned the sinner. However, he never condoned the sin, right? He told her, go and sin no more. He didn't gloss over it. He didn't condone it. Oh, it's okay, honey. You meant well. No. He said, go and sin no more. It was sin. It was wrong. Go, don't do that anymore. He never condemned the sinner. He never condoned the sin. He mastered He didn't even go around the law. He, he kept the law. The law said she should have been stoned if she had accusers, right? And she had accusers until... Jesus spoke and said, you who are without sin cast the first stone. And they all left. He didn't go around the law. He just made sure, he didn't even not uphold the law. He just made sure he had, she had no accusers. He wasn't going to accuse her. He's not the accuser. The enemy's the accuser. He's our advocate. He made sure she had no accusers. And love changes everything. Right? That's love. He didn't condemn her, but he didn't condone the sin either. I love, love, love that story. And how we respond to people outside of the church is going to impact their view of God. I read a blog, and this is a hot topic. I read a blog on a homosexual couple going to church one time. And this, there was a, th- these two girls, and the one was kind of antagonistic. She said, let's go to the church down the road and really stir it up today. So they did, they came, sat right near the front, were openly homosexual, kissing, holding hands, all that. And the girl writing the blog said, you know how they treated us? Like we were just another person walking through the doors of the church. And that was okay with her, but her partner was fried. So the next week they said, let's go back. So they came back and they came back and they came back even more and more and more and more antagonistic. And it didn't change the way that church treated them. Oh, we're so glad you're here. Let me give you a hug this morning. How's everything doing? You okay today? So glad you're here. And it went on and on and on. And this partner left her and she was devastated. So where did she go? She went where she was loved saw that it was wrong, gave her heart to Christ, married, children, forgiven, set free, because the church didn't condemn her. Right? The church loved her. Love everyone. What does love look like? That's what love looks like. Are we looking for the gold gold? on the inside of people that don't know him? Are we expecting them to act like they know him? It's abiding in him. It's that reliance upon Christ for salvation that enables us to produce fruit, to produce that evidence of our faith. They don't have that. They're not going to produce evidence of their faith. And we need to love them anyway. Admire them. Choose our object with a decision of will and devote a self-denying and compassionate devotion to it. Let's go have a block party. Let's just go love them. Let's just feed them and invite them over to hang out for a while. Love them. We need to be looking for gold instead of judging. Are we a part of the divisiveness going around us? Are we really acting like Jesus would do? I'm going to end with this, 1 Corinthians 10. <clears throat> I'm going to read a couple verses in here. This is love, that self-denying and compassionate act. Remember I said we, we we're focusing too much on our freedom in Christ and not in our responsibility. This is what love means. So my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. You are reasonable people. Decide for yourselves if what I'm saying is true. Hold on. I'm going to read it in another version, too. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. Think about the people of Israel. Weren't they united by eating the sacrifices at the altar? What am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. This was kind of the hot topic of their day. Eating food that was sacrificed to other idols. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and drink from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons too. What? What? Do we dare rouse the Lord's jealousy? Do you think we are stronger than he is? Verse 23, you say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't, this is love. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. So you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner, turn away and run because they aren't Christians. No. If someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to eat whatever is offered to you without raising questions of conscience. But suppose someone tells you this meat was offered to an idol. Don't eat it out of consideration for their conscience. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for them. For why? But you ask, why should my freedom be limited by what someone else thinks? Ever hear that? Huh? If I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? I'm allowed. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to the Jews or to the Gentiles or to the church of God. I too try to please everyone and everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me, I do what is best for others so that many might be saved. And you should imitate me. I'm just going to read a couple of these verses out of the voice translation and then let you go. This is love. Whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink or not, it's your choice. Don't offend Jews or Greeks or any part of the church of God for that matter. Consider my example. I strive to please all people in all my actions and words, but don't think I'm in this for myself. It's their rescued souls that are the only prophet. Paul's instructions on this matter are clear. Believers should give up their rights and freedoms for the sake of others. This is the essence of sacrifice. This is what Jesus did. This is what Paul does. Otherwise, community becomes impossible. But no state or church authority should force compliance It must arise from a heart of love and a disposition that puts the needs of others first. Grace enables sacrifice. We're called to live a life of sacrifice just like Jesus did. Andrew Murray said, do we feel that Jesus' sacrifice delivered us from our need to sacrifice? It did not. It enables our sacrifice. Do we say, I'm not under the law, so I'm allowed? It doesn't matter. I'm still going to heaven. I'm free. We hear that a lot, don't we? Or, Do we say that because we're trying to live holy? Or because we want to do what we want to do without feeling convicted? If we are, it's a selfish attitude and it's far from what Jesus did. When Paul said to those under the law, I become as one not under the law, it doesn't mean that he acted as though he had no law. He said, I still obey the law of Christ. What it means is I don't expect them to be under the law. Yet. It's not about me. Everyone say, it's not just about me. And this is what spiritual maturity looks like. This is what love for everyone looks like. I'm going to lay down my right if it means that you're going to come to know Him. It all is about the harvest, it all is about them. We need to add to our faith, Paul, Peter said so that we can be productive, so that we can pull them into the kingdom. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Father, we're so thankful for your grace and for your love. That lives in us we're so thankful we can abide in you so thankful that you fill us with what we need to live and participate in your divine nature hallelujah and i pray for everyone who hears this this weekend and as they listen or watch online father that you give us the strength and the desire and the fire and the ability to walk above to live above these worldly standards, to live according to your standard and your divine grace and ability in us so that we can be productive, so that we can be strong, so that we won't fall away, so that we can draw as many to you before the judgment seat of Christ as possible. Oh, we do want the whole earth to be filled with your glory. We want every knee to bow. We want every tongue to confess on this side of the judgment seat, Father. So help us to grow, to grow up, to grow strong, to grow mature, so that we can be used by you in a greater measure. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. We're so thankful for um, all of our, our volunteers, again, just to say thank you from our hearts um, for what you guys did and accomplished yesterday. Love truly does. It, it's not love is, it's love does. Christ has called us to live this life where it makes a difference, and um, I'm so thankful for this message. I think it's very timely. I think it's, it's very appropriate. It's, it's showing us what we are supposed to how we are supposed to live as Christians. It's not just to be comfortable in the, in the chairs at church. It's to make a difference. So would you stand with us? You can, you can stay seated. We just love you all and um, it's our privilege, it's our honor to uh, just to bless you. And so today we just, we bless you in the mighty name of Jesus. May the face of the Father shine on you, his children. May you come to understand and know just how real the relationship is with you and your heavenly Father. May you understand that it's not just sitting in a chair at church. It's not just coming on a Sunday or going to a home and a life group on a Wednesday or midweek. It's about actually doing what the Word of God says in James. Be doers of the Word, not just hearers only. We bless you to have ears to hear and hearts to understand and minds to comprehend just who you are in Christ Jesus. May you go from this place knowing and living exactly what the Word of God says that you are. God bless you as you go. We are just so thankful for this amazing family. We love you. God bless you. We'll see you this week.